The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. That was a little Robin Ford. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. And that was track three, Don't Deny Your Love, off of Robin Ford's Blue Moon. And there is a birthday boy in the house, Sheldon Abbott. Happy birthday. He comes on at 10 with Cure for the Blues. So happy, happy, Sheldon. He's awesome. All right. So kicking off today's Get the Funk Out show is Suki, Suki Forbes. She's the founder and president of an art and collectibles company and a blogger at the Huffington Post. She's written a book called The Angel in My Pocket. It's her first book, and she lectures on positive grief and embracing life after loss. She's been interviewed and featured on ABC, WGBH, NPR, LA Talk Radio, and so many more. It's my pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Suki Forbes. Good morning, Suki. Good morning, Janine. Thanks so much for calling in. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. You have a very interesting uh, bio, and um, before we get into your book, The Angel in My Pocket, it's your first book, correct? Yes, it is. Uh, tell me about your background. Well, I'm from New England, so I come from um, on both sides of the family, many generations of a family that's, that's been in a space for a long time, okay. and um, know people of many generations, and all that comes with that, both good and bad, is, has informed who I am as a person in terms of the expectations and also in terms of the broad, multi-generational support. Mm-hmm. We're, Very, we're in New England, excuse me. Um, Boston, okay. Massachusetts. Yeah, I lived there for many years. Oh, my, you did? Yeah, okay. Well, I grew yeah. up in Milton, just south of Boston. I know that is. I lived in Brookline for many years. Not a bad place. Yeah, I went to BU and uh, spent a lot of time there. Yeah, it's a great it's a great town. It's a wonderful. Um, it still feels very European, I think. Um, yes. Very academic community, and again, a lot of people have been there for a very long time, and right. so that provides a nice flavor of, I think, continuity and and uh, rootedness. Yes, except I don't miss those winters when the snow was up to the the meters. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. I, I I moved with my family to California this. This year, this past year in okay. August, yes. and boy, our timing couldn't have been better. I think it was just a brutal, a brutal winter this past time. Oh yes, yeah. And then you get here, and you're like, oh my gosh, I lose track of the seasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in Northern California, so we have slightly, oh. slightly more seasons than, than down in Orange County. But I, I agree with you. There's there's something really wonderful about the full cycle of life that you can see more in New England and and yes. the climates like that. That's so true. That's so true. Now, tell me about your book. Obviously, you faced incredible grief. You lost a daughter. Mm -hmm. And at what point did you decide to write about it? Well, thank you for asking, because I think that's actually a really key piece of why this book is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, The Angel in My Pocket is a grief memoir about losing my daughter um, very suddenly at the age of six. 
And there are many books out there that describe grief and describe the process of being in grief, but I needed a lifeline um, and something that was hopeful that if, in fact, I allowed myself to descend into that deep, dark place, mm-hmm. that at some point there could be hope on the other side for reengaging in life and in the world and learning. Yeah. And I didn't find any books out there in the library or on the bookshelf, and that was very frustrating, and it fed into the whole feedback loop of you're doing this wrong, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I decided that my end point was going to be to try very hard to find a way back to a fully engaged life, I um, I wrote about it along the way, and when I got to that place, that was the moment where I felt it was appropriate to tell the story, so that it was a full process of transformation. Of, for me, I had a hard time initially feeling anything. So, right. um, the process of descending into grief and learning to feel emotions, moving through that, and then um, finding finding ways to find comfort and not leave it behind because we don't wear some of all of our experiences, mm-hmm. but to carry it in a way that, um, that made life richer yes. in, wa- in, in ways and, made, um, and, and one learns from it. Right. You know, and um, I actually lost a niece to a rare genetic disorder called histiocytosis. Oh. And it was horrific. And, yeah. And no one can tell you, you know, okay, it's time to move on, or it's, it's devastating, period. Well, it's true, and I think, you know, it is so true what they say. People are very careful, um, and this, one of the things that I learned and was a great gift is you really learn about the humanity and empathy mm-hmm. that so many people have, and um, I felt very embraced on, on all levels of the community, That's and great. that was really wonderful. Because it is a devastating experience, and you don't know what to do with it. Right. And so just sitting with it takes different levels, amounts of time for different people. And there is no, I mean, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has the five stages of grief, which, while I find helpful, I also think has done a disservice to the grieving community and to the people who are struggling with personal crises. Mm-hmm. Um, it just takes what it takes, and it depends who we are. And right. so there's no prescribed time of three months, one year, three years. You just, in one of the greatest expressions I heard very recently when I was speaking, someone in the audience said, I just feel we don't move through grief, but grief moves through us. Oh. And I think that that's yeah. a really powerful um, and important uh, piece to acknowledge. I you don't, don't ever move through it. You just, keep, you just keep going, and it stays with you, but you just find a way to... Right. To, to, to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, to compartmentalize it, to grow from it, to learn from it, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and to keep moving. Right. I, what I was going to say was, four years ago, I lost a really good friend of mine from high school, and mm-hmm. that's why I started the show, Get the Funk Out, because it was kind of fascinated with why is it some people cannot move through grief, they can't get through really, really hard times, while others, they go through this really dark crazy time and they come out even stronger mm-hmm. and I, I remember just thinking I'm so lucky to have such a supportive husband and family that will listen to me because I need to talk about what I'm feeling and I think if you don't have people that are willing to just let you vent and open up that's not good well I would agree with you there I, I think that that attacking any 
deep personal crisis Mm -hmm. involves a multi-pronged approach. And those of us who have a strong support network already in place on day one start out at an advantage. But that doesn't mean people who are completely alone can't make it through. And in fact, part of where I have gone, you know, Charlotte, my daughter, died 11 years ago. And in those 11 years, I've changed a lot of how I feel about grief and approaches to it. And some of what I have um, engaged in conversationally is we are actually very resilient as human beings. And Mm -hmm. particularly in the United States, we don't like dealing with death or our own mortality or the thought we could lose a child. And yet, in fact, living living and dying are absolutes. And we all lose someone we love at some time. And we are programmed at the cellular level, to find a way through. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of different reasons, I think over time, um, people distance themselves of it from from death and from the feeling, and they just say, I can't possibly go there. And yet we all do go there. It It is very helpful to have supportive people around us. Writing is very important. Movement is very important. Talk therapy is very important. Um, I think there are some very, there are a couple of very consistent pieces that I do think apply universally to us, whether we have a strong support network or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you that the two of them, and I write about this in the, in the Angel in My Pocket, is I think there's a real tension between the two most important pieces. And one is that we need to be very quiet and sit with ourselves, whether that means going to a church or a house of worship or Mm -hmm. sitting on a porch or in meditation or however it is that we get to a quiet place and we listen to that still small voice or what Ralph Waldo Emerson refers to as the wise silence, but it's that voice inside of us that knows, and it's not that voice that tells us we still look fat and spanked, (laughs) or that we can't make a pot roast, or that we're a crappy girlfriend, or what, not that voice, that voice needs to, you know, die a slow, painful death. Yes. But it's the quiet voice that really knows, and we have to sit quietly. And how we do that differs for each of us. And then secondly, and equally as important, is looking outside of ourselves for places that will bring us comfort. And again, those places are different for each of us. And one thing that grief requires us and that personal crisis requires of us is to be more open-minded to where that would be. Because for some people, it could be picking up a new hobby or volunteering somewhere or uh, you know, getting a job yes. or exploring some new spiritual path. It could be anything, but what it needs to be is something where our attention goes outside of ourselves. Absolutely. And if we do too much of either of those, spend too much time inside ourselves, we get stuck. And if we spend too much time outside and ignoring our quiet self, we also get stuck. So those are two very, very important pieces mm-hmm. of the process. How did you learn to do all this or write about this? Did you find yourself stuck and inside your head? I was super stuck. I mean, again, we talked about um, my old New England Yankee background, very sort of puritanical, Mm -hmm. not emotional, very stoic, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and keep going. And that is really great for survival mode, but not great for daily mode or for being a human being. And so 
I found, personally, I was unable to feel anything for a very long time after Charlotte died. Mm -hmm. And um, I also, I could not feel anything, and I also was not able to, I didn't have much religion growing up of any sort. And so I had no idea where she went. And so I was in crisis about how to feel anything, and also in crisis about where did my daughter go? Where did all of this loving bundle of joy oh. how how is it even possible that she could have vaporized and my husband who was raised very catholic was completely convinced that she was in heaven and i thought well that sounds great but i have no sense of that right and so my outside explorations involved going to see exploring religion mm-hmm. and spirituality and for me ultimately going to see psychic mediums and that for me brought me comfort that's not necessarily everybody else's answer right. um, but being open-minded to a place that gives you a sense of peace of mind is very important and um, that's interesting yeah so I, I, I had to work very hard to get unstuck and and first to feel and then to also process and what was that whole experience like, going to a psychic? Oh, my gosh, that was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, again, part of this whole open-mindedness is I had to know, I had to believe that my daughter, was I would see her again. Mm-hmm. And so one person suggested to me, I go see a psychic medium, one of these people who can talk to people, quote-unquote, on the other side who have crossed over. Yes. And if it meant in any way, shape, or form that I might get the slightest hint for my daughter, that some that she was out there, I would have tried anything. And so I went, and I was one of about five people in an auditorium, and this woman came out. She described how she, how she does this, and she did readings just cold, and she said, if I start talking about one of your loved ones, you raise your hand. And she did it to several other people, and I thought, ha, 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 well, they're probably just plants in the audience, but right. isn't this fascinating? And then she proceeded to describe my daughter in such incredible detail and bits about our relationship, my relationship with her, her relationship with her siblings and her father and her friends. She told me about things that I had not shared with anyone in the world. Mm. There's no way this woman could have made it up. She couldn't have even been reading my mind because she told me some things I didn't even know. And it gave me a strong sense that there was somehow she was talking to some bit of my daughter. Unbelievable. And that, to me, allowed, allowed me to relax into the grief and get back into life a little bit more, knowing that some piece of my daughter was separate and yet mm-hmm. still here, and that we would be together again at some point. Yes. That is powerful. It blew my socks off, i got to tell you. And again, it's not for everyone, right. but that said, in writing The Angel of my, in My Pocket, I was convinced that a number of people, because I write in great detail about going to the psychic medium and how it really shifted the whole course of my grief mm-hmm. and my life, um, I really expected I'd get pushback. And I have found every single time I speak about this book, whether it's a large forum or small, I am approached afterwards by people who I would never have expected. Mm-hmm. And they thank me for talking about it. They share their personal experiences. They'll say, thank you, I thought I was crazy. Or, thank you, I agree, I've been talking to my fill-in-the-blank mm-hmm. for five years. She appears to me. This is not an uncommon experience of people, and yet it's not discussed, in my opinion, nearly enough. 
because it is it does give a great sense of comfort yes. that we don't fully go. Well, and the powerful thing is that you're not just writing a book from zero perspective. You're writing it from a point of experience, and so you have such empathy, and then people connect with your story. Well, I hope that's true. I will say I was very frustrated early on um, in the grief. Uh, again, I was so stuck, I didn't know what to feel or think. And I went on a walk, and nature for me has always been probably the closest thing to a church I've ever had. And on that walk, it became very clear to me I had only three choices. I could die, I could exist, or I could live. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's ever lost a child or a loved one will very often say, I'd die if that happened to me. Well, guess what? You don't get to unless you take your own life. And I had other children and a husband. I couldn't do that. And I wanted to, but I couldn't. And existing seemed like a death sentence in and of itself. I wanted to believe I'd see my daughter again. So choosing to live was the only option. And the best I could do for a very long time was deciding to want to want to live. Mm -hmm. And once I made that decision, I became very frustrated about the lack of resources out there. And again, that's when I started assembling this and thinking, I'm going to get to that place, and if I get to that place, I will share the story. And maybe that will be a lifeline for somebody. Maybe this book that I needed on my nightstand, maybe this book will be the book that somebody else needed on their nightstand. And I can't tell you how much it has meant to me to hear over and over again from people that that is exactly what has happened, that this book specifically has helped people in exactly the way I needed to be helped and had given hope. Well, and out of your grief, you've given people a gift. Well, I hope so. I think you it's know? a powerful legacy for, you know, my daughter Charlotte. And I would trade it all back to have her here of in course. a nanosecond. Of course. But she has brought her story and how our family has absorbed the loss and um, made it a part of us and continued to move through has been inspiring to enough other people that that has given some sense of comfort as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to add something. We were talking earlier, your background. You were actually related to Ralph Waldo Emerson. I know. So is it not surprising that you've gone down this path of becoming a writer as well? Well, I, of course, would love to say that it's all in the genes and I've channeled it all directly into me, but I think that would be really grossly overstating it. Um, I would love to believe that the culture of much of his um, way of being in transcendentalism and the mm-hmm. divinity of each of us and, in, and God in nature mm-hmm. um, and our overall connectedness, that was very much the spirit in which I was raised, even okay. though being the great-great-great-granddaughter of somebody like that, one would expect he would have been a daily household conversation. He wasn't. Um, and in fact, I turned to him and other writings of family members again, being a a member of a family that doesn't communicate a whole lot about emotions. And I turned to writings, and there were many of his, and very quickly I was reminded of the fact that not only was he an extraordinary man with a great mind and all of that, but that he had lost a child at the age of six from a high fever, same as me. Yes. So I really feel as though he held my hand right through that process. If any of his... um, The only thing we have in writing in common in our writing is we're very wordy, and we both need a good editor, but his writing is far superior to mine. Um, 
but an extraordinary man and very ahead of his time as a transcendentalist. I think that a lot of today's um, philosophical thinking is circling back to mm-hmm. that, um, to those early transcendentalist thinkers that were so, somewhat considered outsiders in the um, mid-1800s. And the other thing I want to ask you as well is, you mentioned you have other children. How, how were you able to help them through this whole process? Well, um, both their dad and I were really committed to making sure that they they continued to have a childhood. And I think the only thing worse than losing one child would be to take the childhood away from the surviving two. So as in much of our process of moving through grief, and I can't speak specifically for him, um, but we we did a lot of just showing up. And we were on the sidelines of the kids' games, and they had birthday parties. And we went to, which I cannot believe, back to school night 10 days after she died. But we were there, and I think as a result, the kids, when the children are that young, our surviving children were aged 3 and 7, so much of their world is based on how their parents are moving through the world. And I'm sure they knew that we were just completely gutted and... um, lowly functional, right. and yet their day-to-day life was not overly changed. And as parents of multiple children, I think on any given day, we try not to, we try to balance the attention we give to our children. Mm-hmm. And their dad and I tried very hard not to give our grief any more attention than we gave each of our surviving children. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the early stages, that was close to impossible. We were both engulfed in it in different ways. Sure. But oh, we were very mindful of making sure that they were okay, mm-hmm. whatever that meant to them at that stage in their life. And I don't write a lot about either of um, my surviving children in the book, and that's, that's deliberate because I didn't want to expose them. Sure. No, I understand. And how did, you, how did it come about you became a blogger for the Huffington Post? You know, um, somebody asked me to submit some of my writing, mm-hmm. and I, um, I wrote a piece about Mother's Day. I said I'm a mother to, I think it was called I'm a Mother to an Angel, which is now, it's on my website as well as the Huffington Post archives. Mm-hmm. And I submitted it, but I submitted it too late, and I got a personal note back saying, please submit more writing. And so I submitted a few other posts, and um, they accepted one. I don't remember which one. And the way in which they accepted it, and I think this is somehow how, how the world works, is they just said, okay, here, please set up your blogger profile, and here you go. And, you know, that was it. And so then I just became a, a blogger for them. Fantastic. Um, and sometimes they get featured, and sometimes they don't. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I often find it's my humorous one, either the ones that they're extreme, either the humorous pieces that yes. poke fun of life, which is a side of me that is um, more accessible today, or the ones that are really um, deep and raw. That's amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Tell me about, um, you know, you have so many things that you juggle, but maybe you could give some advice to people that are going through a funk. The theme of the show is get the funk out. So if someone's facing, you know, the loss of somebody or just, you know, a, a tremendous time in their life of change. Well, I I love the name of your show, by the way. I think that's so terrific. I think movement is incredibly important, no matter whether we're physically active or not. I think we, I really believe we need to be active. And our powerful life experience, life experiences manifest themselves at the cellular level or Mm -hmm. even the subcellular level in our bodies. 
and you know they say breath is a cleansing as a cleansing act in and of itself i found very much that i had to get out and move and i do think that's incredibly important many people are just paralyzed and unable to move yes. and just the sheer act of getting up and walking around a block can really shift and be very important mm-hmm. and the more we breathe i mean literally you can feel if 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 one is very body aware you can feel the heaviness leaving your body. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think about the breath coming in and circling around all of the icky stuff and then exhaling it as like a wave receding like and taking it away with it. Yes. Um, but it, it doesn't even, I think the visualization is less important. The movement is really powerful. Yes. I think writing is very important. Whether you ever send those letters, um, just sitting down and trying to um, either writing a letter to the person that you are wrestling with the issue with or that has law lo- you've lost or is ill can be very, very helpful. And again, those are conversations that may spark a conversation that needs to be had or writing that letter or that thought out on a piece of paper may be very, may be healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I mentioned again the sitting very quietly and then also finding, being open-minded to other places that will create comfort. It could be picking up knitting. I mean, you never know, but the real gift of being brought to our knees is that it's an opportunity to do a little bit of a deeper dive on our, on our daily life and about, um, who we are as a person. And that's a gift if we choose to let it be. You know, one thing I mentioned earlier is I think you just need to allow yourself time to go through this and don't let anybody else judge how fast or how slow. I mean, I remember talking to um, family members of my friend who I lost and they said, well, you just have to move on. And and, and I'm thinking, no, I'm not ready to move on. Right. You know? Absolutely. And I want to be really clear when I say keep moving. That doesn't mean moving on. No. And it doesn't basically. mean ignoring. No. Um I try to be very hopeful, and I set my eyes on a place of wanting to live and re-engage with life and embrace. You don't get from point A of being brought to your knees and unable to move from point A to that point of re-engaging in life without moving through all of those multiple layers of, of whatever comes up for us. We, the only way out is through, yes. but it's possible, and there's a lot of permission that's involved, which is another issue that I have. Mm-hmm. I mean, misery is an option, right. and we have to be miserable for a while, but not forever. Right. And we, we can give ourselves permission to one day be okay or to want to be okay, and that's also a part of the process. Yes. And I remember um, a priest said to me very early on, you'll have points where you aren't grieving, and life will feel okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that can't possibly happen. Mm-hmm. And those moments did come, and they came early, but, sh- but they were brief. Yes. And those were more difficult almost to deal with than when I was weeping or just crying sobs that you know, started in my toes and went through the whole body. Mm-hmm. Because those moments when, when I smile, I think, what's wrong with you? Right. And yet it goes back to that whole... Um, that whole premise that we are programmed to be resilient. We are programmed to be survivors, and we need to give ourselves permission. I can't say that enough. Um, So many of us just get stuck in the thinking, I will be here forever. Mm. Yeah, right, and that's not realistic, obviously. 
Well, it's not, and it's unfortunate because there are great. We learn a lot from our suffering, mm-hmm. and and if we're going to have to go through, I mean, if we're going to have to do all this suffering, why not come out on uh, some on some given day further down the line? Why not land on another in another place that makes us a better human being? Yes. Well, you know, I, we have to wrap up, but this has been incredible talking with you. Is, is there a website you have that people can go to? Uh, yes, it's very complicated. It's called SukiForbes.com, <laughs> S-U-K-E-Y Forbes.com. And I'm very active on social media, both on um, my author page and personal Facebook page, and love to have conversations about many things such as this and also the lighter side of life. So uh-huh. I encourage anybody to reach out to me on those platforms or follow me on the Huffington Post. And, um, it, you know, there, I am very reachable if somebody would like to have a conversation and, you know, get my non-official and, <laughs> you know, personal experience. I'm happy to share from share with that. That'd be great. Suki, thank you so much for calling in. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Have a wonderful summer. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. That was Suki Forbes joining us to talk about her book, The Angel in My Pocket. And if you missed any part of this, it will be up on my blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.